Um, I listen very, very carefully. Um, I'm in no way trying to market something. In fact, if there's ever any proceeds, um, it goes to a girls' school in Senegal. So um, I just want you to know that from the beginning. Um, these books I put up there for a different reason because I feel like sometimes you can be intimidated if you can't afford something to go to the person that has them. So I put them there so they're out of the way. Um, if you want to get a book, you can literally just drop the money in the bag, and if you can't afford it, just take it. Um, and I say that so sincerely, but I do ask that if you take a book, you promise to read it um, or use it for discipleship. Every chapter ends with questions. You might say, what is this book? Why was it even written? I had it on my heart for almost 10 years, discipling mostly, uh, I mean, young men, but working with youth. And the point of the book is this. When you come to know Jesus Christ, what's the bridge between believing in Christ and all-out surrendering to him? And this book intends to be a practical journey from those two points. I'm not saying that the author is an all-out surrender example. But what I am saying is that if Jesus Christ meant what he said, we have to ask ourselves some very hard questions about our career, about our finances, about our relationships, about our words. Talks about being guided by the Holy Spirit. Talks about the blessing of persecution and suffering. I'll tell you this, this book will not fit into the normal American life. I guarantee that. But here's the cool thing. It applies just as much to me as it does a 10-year-old to an 80-year-old in the audience because it's not about saying this is what it looks like. It says if Jesus meant what he said, you have to ask these questions. So it's 10 bucks. You don't have to pay that. Just use it. If you're discipling somebody, make sure you get two so you can go through it together. Or you can, uh, if you want uh, online, you can get Kindle or you can get audiobook. But I don't have those available here. All right, I'm done with that. No more. They're there. There's more in the bag. Dig them out. Do what you got to do. Let's go to the Word. Second Kings, 2 Kings, chapter 6. And we only have today and tomorrow. I'll go ahead and tell you that uh, tomorrow morning, what we want to end on is the end of Elisha's earthly time here on earth. But it's hard to pick out which stories to focus in on during our brief time together. There is so much beauty in Elisha's life, and I hope that your appetite has been wet enough to go back and fill in the blanks of the things that have not been looked at. But this morning, I want to cover the topic of blindness. Blindness. And I want to talk about two different demographics of blindness. We have, in this story, we're going to have blind believers, and we'll have blind unbelievers. So I want you to know right now, you are not excluded from the topic of blindness when it comes to this passage. When I think of blindness, uh, I oftentimes think back to an example that impacted my life greatly. Uh, the example of an author named Fanny Crosby. She was uh, made blind, if I can say that, or allowed to be blind by the Lord. He definitely let this trial come into her life for the blessing of the church, but uh, with a doctor's error early in life. And at the age of eight years old, she wrote a little poem that said, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. So many pleasures I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, and I won't. My favorite hymn of hers, uh, and I mean, since I was about a six or seven-year-old, it's been like my favorite hymn, My Savior First of All. And I love how she wrote that. Um, she was apparently, she wasn't watching the sunset, but her friend was, and was describing the sunset to her. And then he, uh, she asked the, her friend asked the question, what if God plays a mean trick on you, and when you get into eternity, you're still blind? And she said, well, God's not going to do that. 
Well, play along with me. If he does, how will you know who Jesus is? She said, well, then I guess when I get to heaven, I'll just start grabbing any hand I can grab. And I'll just start feeling the palms of the hands. And when I come to hands with nail prints, I'll know I found my Savior. And then she wrote, I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hands. But I share that story because at the end of Fanny's life, she said something which is very powerful, and this is where we're going to begin with blind believers. She was asked the question, Fanny, if you could do it all over again, would you want to have earthly eyesight? And she quickly responded, absolutely not. And of course, it demands the three-letter question, why? She said, because think about it. You've been blinded by all the things you've seen. But me, I've had clear vision. And think about this. The very first face I will ever see will be the face of Jesus Christ. And I would not exchange a life of sight for that privilege. We want to start by talking about blind believers because I believe many of us, though we know Christ, we still live blind. And this passage will bring out very clearly what that type of blindness is. In 2 Kings chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 8 for the sake of context. And when we get to verse 15, we're really entering into the meat of where we want to focus Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to him, Will you not show me who of us it is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open uh, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around against him. All around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please, strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not whom you seek. 
and he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Father, thank you for your word. It's so beautiful. It's so clear. It's powerful. It speaks to us in July of 2019. As we open your word, I ask that you reveal to us the blindness that's covering our eyes, our spiritual eyes. And Lord, I pray for those that have yet to know you, that you would give them sight this morning. We pray that Christ would receive all the glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we want to see two brief categories, blind believers and blind unbelievers. Uh, Three aspects just to quickly look at in the lives of blind believers. Now let's have a little bit of preface to what's going on here as we look at these three aspects. We've got this king, uh, this Moabite king, who wants to attack Israel, but every time he comes up with a plan... Well, Elisha warns the king of Israel, which is actually beautiful in and of itself, just uh, based off the relationships there, that Elisha is showing mercy to actually give this information to a king that is not necessarily living in the most godly way. Now, with that being said, it gets annoying to this king, I said, sorry, I said Moabite, king of Syria. Now, think about what is happening in the mind of the king of Syria. He thinks that he's got some spies mixed in with his troops, and so he's very disturbed. And so he's trying to find out who it is. And and to me, all of this is kind of counterintuitive, what actually happens here, because they say, well, Elisha. And Elisha knows even what's going on in your bedroom. Like, even there, he knows what you're saying. And I kind of know what that's like. I've lived in certain countries around the world where my house is bugged. And, uh, and I know that what's said in my bedroom is being listened to by government authorities. So if I ever want to have a conversation, I actually, I'm the kind of guy that talks to them. I'm like, might as well share the gospel right now. <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ came in this world to die. for. It's actually kind of fun when you know they're listening in, right? Um, but anyway, moving on. He's, he doesn't believe it, even though they say it's Elisha. But he believes it enough to say, let's go get Elisha. But as though Elisha doesn't even know they're going to come get him. I mean, it's just like, what? You believe it, but you don't believe it. And that's the way our world works. We don't even make sense anymore, do we? Just look at the way our society talks. We have no idea. And I say this with all respect in the world. You know how it says uh, about the Ninevites, they don't know their right hand from their left? United States doesn't know male from a female. And I say that with all respect in the world. We live in a world that is absolutely blind. And this is true of the king in this case. Well, it says he's in Dothan. This is very interesting. There was another prophet in the Old Testament scriptures that also was surrounded by enemies in Dothan. And interestingly, he was captured. But he was captured for the purpose of God's glory. We're going to see Elisha is not captured also for the purpose of God's glory. See, God can work two different ways in a situation. 
He might heal you from cancer, and he might let me be ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ through cancer. And in both cases, it's okay. It's for his glory. But the question is, are we seeing the real picture going on? The other example is the man Joseph, where he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And his enemies were the Ishmaelites that surrounded him back in Dothan, Genesis 37. And so now, with that kind of preface, let's enter into the battle itself. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? The first thing about blind believers is they are alarmed by the unforeseen reality. Alarmed by the unforeseen reality. In other words, the things that come in our life suddenly, the things that we did not expect. Let me ask you, right now in your life, is there something that you did not expect, but it's there? Maybe it's a good thing, but most likely there's something that's been unforeseen that you did not expect to have happen. And it's your reality now. Well, one thing about blind believers here is this is the starting point. We get alarmed by it. In other words, it wakes us up. But here's the thing. Do we see the danger or do we see God's deliverance? It's an important thing for us to meditate on and to consider. There's a Southern Gospel song. Remember, I said next to Kenny G, I also like Southern Gospel. There's a Southern Gospel song that says, If I never had a problem... I'd never know that he could solve it. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Well, it's so easy for us to see a danger rather than realizing that it's the stage of God's deliverance. I mean, let's use a little bit of logic here. And I say that with respect. I'm not saying that in an in a, in a insulting kind of way. You can never be delivered if you don't have a situation of desperation. You don't say in your easy day-to-day life when nothing's going wrong, man, I was really delivered today. That never happens. Deliverance happens when the enemy surrounds your life and God pulls you out. This is actually the reality in so many areas of our life. I, I know last year I mentioned something similar because I try to mention this everywhere I go. I think it, it brings the hope that we need. I have a prayer I pray. The prayer I pray is Philippians 3.10, and I think you probably pray it too. You say, Lord, I want to know you more. I mean, don't we pray that? And don't we long for it? But, but then the Lord kind of stopped me one time. And challenge me saying, Nathan, do you really want to know me more or do you want to know more about me? Because sometimes I think you just want more cool aspects of my character. Because if you really want to know me, well, to, to know me as your comforter, you have to have some anguish for me to comfort. To know me as your deliverance, you need to be surrounded by your enemy. To know me as your healer, you have to have infirmity. To know me as your provider, you're going to, it's a necessity to be in need. To know me as your salvation, well, you have to know that you're lost. To know me as your sustainer, 
You're going to have to go through a prolonged period of something difficult, and I'm going to sustain you through the whole thing. To know me as your resurrection, you're going to have to die. Do you really want to know me? Or do you just want to know more about me? Because to know me, there's a platform that comes with it. And that's what this man's about to discover. What does he see? He sees the horses and chariots surrounding. He sees the danger. But God says, hang on, I've just set the stage for my deliverance. This is where things get exciting. And so first there's an alarm by the unforeseen reality. But the second thing is this. He awoke to the ultimate reality. First, he's alarmed by the unforeseen reality. Now he awoke to the ultimate reality. What's the ultimate reality? Go back to the Word of God. In verse 16, Elisha says, Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I love these words, do not be afraid. You know Jesus Christ says this so much, right? I mean, whether it's on the sea or whether it's to his disciples in another traumatizing situation, he'll say, don't be afraid. And what would he always follow it with? It is I, or I am with you. You see, the reason for not being afraid is not some kind of just like a like psychological approach, like, dude, you got this, you got this, don't be afraid, like, just go do it. Not at all. It's not, listen, 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 it's not that there is not an authentic reason for you to fear. Like, in other words, your fear might be rational. It might be actually legitimate that your situation brings about a fear when you look at your situation. God's not saying don't fear because there's no need to fear. He's saying don't fear because there's a greater reality. And that greater reality is not only is my presence with you, my power accompanies my presence. As believers in Christ, I have to ask the question, what are we focusing on? Are we focusing on the last chapter? That Christ reigns forever? Are we focusing on who has the last word? L let me give you an illustration in America. I find there's great discouragement in the church on the second Tuesday of November. I do. And I would actually have the audacity to suggest that many believers in Christ have less peace in their life and less hope in their life on those dates and less joy in their life, things that come from the Spirit of God who never changes. So I would strongly suggest that something's changing and I would suggest it is our perspective. Are we focused on the unforeseen reality, like uh, the alarm, are we alarmed by it, I should say, or are we going to be awake to the ultimate reality? And the ultimate reality is God is on the throne and he's not up for election. <laughs> ever. There's no four-year term. There's no eight-year term. There's no term. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords. And at his name every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess voluntarily. Why? They'll know. What are you looking at now? Are you seeing that now? Do you believe the word of God? Because if you believe the word of God, 
You're going to say, this is the truth. This is the reality that we can live our life by. I want to just bring out a different aspect of this, though, because I think this is very vital. Flip back very very carefully. You can do it carefully, too, but quickly is what I'd prefer. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. I just want to bring out one thing because I actually think there's something more at stake than just being awake. I think the bigger, uh, another big thing at stake is God's glory. And let me explain what I mean by this. In Numbers chapter 13, when you come to verse 33, I want you to see what the 10 spies said about the Canaanites. They said specifically that they were giants, okay? And then what do they say about themselves in the eyes of the giants? They said, we were like grasshoppers. Now, hang on, flip over to Isaiah 40. Go to Isaiah 40. This is vital. When they said, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. In Isaiah 40, look down to verse 22. It says this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, now, do you understand what's happening? You might have gotten lost a little bit over that like transition, but here's the point. When we see our enemies in the light where we are like grasshoppers to them, we have just put our enemies in the place of God. We have given them a position and authority that only God deserves. No threat of earth deserves our fear in the light of his presence. And this is the lesson that Elisha is teaching. Now, now, uh, please appreciate what Elisha doesn't do. When Elisha prays, look what he prays. He says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. What does he not pray? This is great. He does not pray, O Lord, save us from our enemy. He doesn't pray, oh Lord, send our enemy away. Oh Lord, open the eyes of my servant. What's the point? We don't need our situations gone. I just want to say to all of us, we don't need our situations gone. I know some of you want your situations gone. You don't need your situations gone. That's not your problem. Your problem is not your situation. Your problem is your sight. We live in a very broken world. We live in a world where what we actually want is God to bring more pieces of heaven to our life. That's what we want. But what he's actually doing is preparing our heart for his heaven. Preparing us to be with him forever. He's conforming us into his image. And he does that very lovingly through brokenness. I just want to challenge you all, maybe change your prayer a bit. Instead of trying to pray away the situations, maybe pray for his sight in the situations. This servant was awoken to the ultimate reality. And then look what happens. The the third thing here is Elisha goes on and he addresses the urgent reality. He addresses the urgent reality. And look how urgent this is. He said, after saying, don't be afraid, it says in verse 18, when the Syrians came down against him. 
In other words, it didn't happen before the march. They're all surrounding the city. I mean, like, in my opinion, it's like, God, can't you just, like, uh, you know, eliminate the drama a little bit? Like, like, save us when they're just, like, standing there outside the city. But that's not what happens. Verse 18 is like, charge! Okay, the clock has started. And then what? Elisha prays. And he says, blind our enemies. Now, it's fascinating what happens. Because when we read the scriptures, maybe what you picture all of a sudden is you picture this like, oh, I can't see, I can't see. That's not the word used for the blindness. And it's not the word used when talking about opening their eyes. In fact, in this passage, when it speaks about open the eyes of my servant and then open the eyes of the blind soldiers later on, We need to know, what is it referring to? Well, it's the same language used back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 7, when the devil and Eve are conversing. And what does the enemy promise? He says, if you eat this, your eyes will be opened. Your your mind will be opened. And then it says in verse 7 that their eyes were opened. Were they blind before? Well, they were blinded from certain things that they didn't need to see. But it's not that they couldn't see physically. This is not actually, I believe, a physical blindness at all in this passage. I certainly don't think Elisha's servant was physically blind. He saw the horses, right? He saw the chariots. We know he wasn't. But I I don't have any reason to believe, and I'm I'm not saying this dogmatically, in reading that passage, I don't have any reason to believe the soldiers were physically blind. The blindness used, and I encourage you, just like look at this word throughout Scripture. In most cases, it's more of a disillusionment. It's a confusion. And I'll come back to that in just a minute with an example that, um, that some of you will find helpful and some of you will totally throw out and say that didn't help a bit. So here's the thing. He addresses the urgent reality. He addresses what's right at the moment. I think oftentimes, you know how we want to live our lives? We want, just like Warren was talking about yesterday, he's talking about insurance policies, right? And uh, I, think, I think you were the one talking, you were talking about the insurance, yeah. Insurance, and how we have insurance policies for everything. And what we would really love to do is we would love to inoculate our life from problems. We would like God to kind of give us this buffer zone. But instead, what we see here is the urgent reality being addressed. And you know, I, I've been thinking about this. Why do you think the Lord does it like that? In his word, he says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Think about this. It's not a floodlight, is it? It's a lamp to my feet. Enough to show me the next step. Why do you think it's about addressing the urgent reality? I want to suggest to you, it's because if God showed us much in advance, we wouldn't be looking to him, we'd be looking to our way. But what the Lord wants is that daily reliance on manna. And we start to complain about it because we want to have some control. But the greatest life is a life which recognizes I can't take one step without you. And so the urgent reality is addressed. Let me ask you, are you blind? And when I say, are you blind? He's like, well, it's hard to tell if I'm blind because it seems to be a spiritual blindness. I want to ask you, are you focused on your situations? Are you overwhelmed by your situations? If you are, you're blind. And I say that in love. This is not condemnation. It's conviction. Look at the bigger picture. What's the bigger picture? I encourage you, write down what you see. And then ask God to show you the armies around what you see. And you'll be encouraged. 
because he loves you more than you love yourself. There is a big picture. But that's not all. Let's keep moving forward here. Let's take a glance at blind unbelievers while we still have a little bit of time. I've got 10 minutes left. Two things about these blind unbelievers. Number one, there is a misunderstanding. And number two, there is mercy for them. First, there is a misunderstanding. Now look at what this misunderstanding clearly is. Who are they trying to go after? They're trying to go after Elisha. Well, let me just tell you straight out, Elisha is not truly their enemy. And in fact, when I say this, a misunderstanding, I, I love this. Look, look what happened. It's almost humorous. It is actually, it's not almost, it is humorous. Uh, in verse 20, Elisha said, Lord, after uh, 19, actually, go 19. Elisha said to these soldiers, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. All right, now there is another evidence as to why they're not physically blind. He's not just pushing them. He says, follow me. That's hard. It's hard to follow. It's really hard to follow if you're just like not seeing a thing. But also, there's actually, a, and I apologize if you don't appreciate this illustration. I really do uh, sincerely. But for those of you that, 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 that like it, it'll really embed in your minds. Um, in episode four of Star Wars, there's a scene with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, and he goes, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> And they're like, these are not the droids we're looking for. I, I really do believe, actually, it's extremely similar in nature because look what he says here. Uh, he says, uh, this is not the way, and this is not the city. You're in the wrong place. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Who is guiding them? Elisha, the very guy they came to seize. And he's like, I'm not the guy. You know how many miles they walked together? Twelve miles. If you've ever done Half Dome, like you go a little more than that, that's a long hike. They're 12 miles walking together. They, I'm sure they were conversing. They were chatting. He's literally leading them into the midst of Samaria. There's a misunderstanding. And let me say, this is the misunderstanding oftentimes with unbelievers. We forget who our real enemy is. That misunderstanding is so real, my friends. First of all, we don't, as believers, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? Our enemy is not souls in the world. They've been blinded by the enemy. I want to challenge you. If you have hatred in your heart towards people who might be part of groups like Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or whichever, whatever you might view, or maybe it's a political group, if you have hatred in your heart, you're the one in the wrong, not them. They're not your enemy. If they're breathing and they got blood flowing through their veins, it's a soul for whom Jesus Christ died. But there's a misunderstanding. Until they come to Christ, they're going to fight against whatever seems to be contrary to their mindset. Don't hate them for it. I love Elisha's approach. They were going after him, and he's like, hang on, you need something. I'll take you to it. I'm not the one you're looking for. Your heart's actually looking for love. And the second thing I said was, there's a misunderstanding and there's mercy. They were looking for mercy. When they come into the city, what happens? Jehoram's like, should I kill them? And I love the logic of Elisha. He, uh, I'm sure through the Spirit of God, he says, if you had captured these guys in war, would you kill them? No. So don't kill them now. Give them bread and water. Give them a feast, a great feast, it says. And then let them go. 
Now, this is what I want to bring us all back to as I close out this message. You see, in ancient Near East culture, if you're invited to the table of someone, you're invited in as a friend. Well, what do we know about the Lord Jesus or God's character? He says he prepares a table for us, right? He spreads a feast before us. And so what does God do? He calls us his friend. He invites us to dine. In that culture, who you ate with was part of your identity. Jesus Christ came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, but also with guys like, well, Zacchaeus, right? Which falls in that category. But he would eat with those that were outcasts in society. Now, why do I say that as a point here? What I want you to see is they are invited to the table. They're invited to intimacy. They're in a place where they thought they would have destruction. They receive mercy. And this is a picture of the gospel for us. This is a key component for the blindness in our world. You see, what blind lives need is not more harsh words. They don't need uh, debates to prove that they're wrong. They don't know what they're seeking after. They're actually going after the wrong source. But what they need to do is be drawn into this banquet feast of love and taste the goodness of our king. And in tasting the goodness of our king, what is the result of this entire story? It says the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. What brought peace in 2 Kings chapter 6? Not the sword. It was the spoon. It, it, it was truly love in action through mercy by a king. I wonder what it would look like if we as the church could see what God sees when he sees the lost and when he sees us. If we could see the true battles taking place. When I look at Elisha as a man who was faithful, a life of faithfulness, I come to the conclusion of this, that the faithful life requires clear vision. Because if you don't have clear vision, you're going to live a discouraged life, an overwhelmed life, a discouraging life. Because what you're going to do is you're going to see the problems rather than the picture that God is painting. And the picture that God paints, I guarantee you, it ends with him as the victor. He has the last word. Let me just make a plea to you as I finish this message. This is a personal plea, but I truly believe it comes from the heart of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, I beg of you, allow, when I say allow, I mean allow, because he wants to, allow God to open your eyes. What do you see when you see the lost? What do you see when you see your own life? If you're overwhelmed and you're discouraged, I believe that God wants to take you back to Psalm 119, I think it's verse 18, where he says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your word. God wants to show you the bigger picture. Not cancer, that's down here. Not, not your job crisis. Not the problems with your kids or with your parents. Not the confusion in your life. Not the unknown future. Not impending death. He says, hang on a second. Zoom out. There are more with you 
than with them. And the last chapter, if you belong to Jesus, is forever with the Lord. I just don't see a negative in that. So my friends, look up. Christ is coming soon. And if we want to live a life of faithfulness like Elisha, we will live a life that's focused on his throne and not on our troubles. Let's pray. Father, take these feeble, broken words and use them for your glory. Thank you that you can take a guy like Elisha's servant and after he sees the ultimate reality, he never even brings up the enemy again. The enemy gets no attention. He doesn't say, but they're charging. There's nothing else about the enemy. Why? Because they're no longer a threat in the presence of your power. God, wake us up today to the ultimate reality. And that is that you care, that you're love, and that you will have the final word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.